G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company. Once again on truthtoyou.org, that's truth2u.org. It's time for Gleanings from Genesis. I'm Jono and joining me all the way from Louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of Tanakh Tours, Ross Nichols. Very exciting at the moment, my friend. Tell us the news very quickly. Hey, Jono, how are you? I am excited today. I, I wrote in a text to a few friends that I am elated. I finished with the rough draft of the manuscript. Now, Dr. Tabor's published many books, so he knows my work isn't done. In fact, he's already told me that a couple of times today. Now I have to go through and make sure my footnotes are right in my bibliography because I do have friends who have PhDs, and I don't want them to be embarrassed to say they know me, if you know what I mean. So I do have some work left to do. You said I finished the manuscript, but I wonder if people... First of all, you mean a book. So you have a book. Can you give us just a hint? Is it it biblically? Like, what what does it deal with? I know it's a mystery. Is it, it a is mystery? a mystery. Is it a secret? It, is it it's from all the of the above. But I can tell you, I wrote this earlier, and these are just some some of my playing around. But it's called the Moses Scroll, right? Now that's the name. Now this is the first time I've told the name. Even someone asked me on Facebook what the name of the book was, and I didn't. So if they're not listening to uh, our show, then they're not going to even get this. But it is called the Moses Scroll, and it Our is the people book get that, the inside stuff. Our that's people. right. That's, they that's they right. hear it first here on Truth to You. Well, we've been yeah, we've been I hinting don't... at this, and we've been talking about it for a long time because it has been months uh, coming, and something that all three of us are, are very very excited about, and we're thrilled that you have uh, finally finished the, the the manuscript. Are you? And this is the first time you've told us the the title of the book. So, are you going to give right. us any more information, just quickly, Ross? Are you going to let anything else out of the bag? Well, let me let me just say this. I think it is, uh, I put this, just these are my rough notes. The book that reopens the most celebrated case in the history of biblical scholarship. How's that for a teaser? Oh. Is that okay? James, am I giving too much away or do you think that's okay? No, I don't I mean, think so good. All right. This is this is <laughs> all, all I'm going to say is um, we've been yeah we've been hinting at uh, well we've, we've been telling people keeping them uh, up to date that you have been writing a book Ross it's something that uh, we're all very excited about and no doubt once it is published uh, it's all we're going to be talking about for a very long time coming um, so really excited about the progress being made there we still hope to see it very early one in other, the one other thing one other thing James is the one that started me on this whole thing, and and I'll say this in the book, but just an email, I think it was December the 19th of 2019, literally changed everything one year ago, and uh, it put me on a course, it's taken me into a study like I've never done before, I've studied biblical criticism, I've studied uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I've worked on my Paleo-Hebrew, and mm. it's all because of a single paragraph that Dr. Tabor sent me almost yeah. a year ago. So I am so excited about letting this book out. So it's coming soon, a, though, Jonathan. That was That's a year ago. Good heavens, and I remember that. Now, now listen, uh, North Carolina, the professor of ancient Judaism and early Christianity at UNC Charlotte, President of United Israel and Editor-in-Chief of the Transparent English Bible. And that's what we're here to discuss. The TEB, the Book of Genesis, is now available at the TEB. You can get it at Amazon in both paperback and Kindle. Welcome, Dr. James Tabor. Thank you, Jonah. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Good to hear you. That's right. I see see you in my imagination. That's That's right. Uh, gleanings from Genesis. This is what we're going to discuss. And we're actually up to chapter three. Before we get there, we do have some emails and some comments. I'd like to uh, give a shout out to Ralph Bunton. G'day, Ralph. Hey. Hello, we Ralph. Yeah. Uh, we author know Ralph. Of, now, by the way, Ralph is the author of uh, the book, speaking of authors and books and whatnot, uh, the book of David is the book that Ralph has penned. And uh, David Horowitz, Dean of United Nations Press Corps and founder of United Israel World Union. Now, this is this is an important book. Uh, you, of it course, is. as I just mentioned, James, you're the the, the president of uh, United Israel. Ross is a uh, a vice president, as is Ralph Bunton, and a lot of people. And David Tyler yeah. and Dave. G'day, Dave. Dave Tyler. <laughs> oh man, I miss Dave. Hey, um, a lot of people do ask me about you know what is United Israel? What is it about? 
this is an excellent book by by Ralph, the Book of David, that really explains the uh, the beginnings of United Israel, how it, how it came to be. It really is a fascinating book. Nineteen forty four. We didn't start. This didn't start yesterday. Before I was born, I think right. before either of you were born. Nineteen forty four. And this man, this incredible man, who went to the Holy Land when he was only in his 20s, he had a vision of bringing the Hebrew faith to the entire world. Not to David, convert David him to David Horowitz is who we're talking about. Yeah, David Horowitz, yep. right. And his extraordinary life. And this it's a prophetic vision where the earth gets full of the knowledge of Jehovah or Hashem. Mm-hmm. And how does that really happen? It's actually a kind of evangelistic Judaism, you could call it, or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. But it's really not Judaism the way people think of it as a religion. It's educational. So we like to think of it as the Hebrew faith, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the faith of Genesis, the faith of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so that's David, United Israel World Union. We're not going to have world union until the earth is full of the knowledge of God as mm-hmm. the waters cover the sea. And and uh, that was his vision. That was his vision. So uh, the Book of David by Ralph Bunton, the book about David Horowitz, the, the founder of United Israel World Union. You can find that on Amazon. I'll put a link in the description, but he sent us an email and I'd just like to read it. He said, I just wanted to say, great job, you guys doing the Gleanings from Genesis series. I finished listening to episode six, thoroughly enjoying the analysis and commentary. James mentioning uh, the incredibly rich and fertile area with perhaps the uh, garden as the pinnacle place in the eastern section of Eden, Ross emphasizing our responsibility to service and guard the ground as caretakers, and Jono's sense of connection and satisfaction as he works in his garden, and I sure do, all things with which I can closely identify, Ralph says, uh, the transparent translation restores the intimate reverence and power of the original in a beautiful and profound way. This is what I tried to portray in my recent two-part series of the good earth. Now, uh, Ross, what is he referring to there? This is an article that was Yeah, uh, I was going to bring that up. He Ralph just po- he's a very good writer. Mm. Uh, he just posted two articles on our United Israel website, unitedisrael.org. And uh, like he said, it's titled The Good Earth, and then there's a part 1 and a part 2. And I really encourage people to go check these out. Anything that Ralph writes is very well written, mm. and I think it's uh, it's quite moving. In fact, I'll tell you, I, I wrote him an email after I uh, read the articles that were posted. I don't think, Jono, that I'll ever go into my yard again and just not be thinking deeply. I mean, it, yeah. it really did the way he put things, you know, and it, and it does so tie into what we're talking about here in in our uh, gleanings from Genesis. so mm. Yeah, it does. And so he, I'll put a link to this as well. Um, the good earth, recognizing that the earth was created as a living organism and that we have a deep connection uh, and obligation to service and guard the planet. I 100% agree with Ralph there. I feel, he goes on to say, I feel the uh, human earth relationship is bound together in the sacred nature of the creation story and that we must carry a natural bond of intimacy with the natural world. Uh, The new TEB permits the reader to recover this sense of the sacred. Keep up the good work, guys. There's nothing else like it out there. All the best, Ralph. Thank you so much, Ralph, for that email. Uh, I I absolutely agree with you. And dear listeners, I will put links for you to find uh, both the book and those articles. EJ Johnson commented saying uh, he and his wife do thoroughly enjoy the shows. It's good to have uh, Dr. Tabor back, he said, all your shows are informative and interesting. Thanks for your efforts. Well, thank you, EJ, for that. And Mark Mosley uh, commented saying last week, um, on last week's episode, saying, I'm really enjoying Genesis. Um, he asked the question, will each book of the Torah be available separately or the Torah separately from the Tanakh? Uh, James? I think the idea would be to do it book by book in this kind of form, you know, like a cheaper paperback, but then, of course, to have the entire Torah eventually. Okay. Ross, mm-hmm. when he finishes, I, I have a couple books in the works, and I think he has another one as well. But we're going to begin in the new year to come up with a plan to try to get this systematically done, because mm. we've spent 
way over 15 years on this. And you say, well, all you have is Genesis. But see, we've actually mapped out the method for all the vocabulary of the entire Torah. So now, and the method of how we want to render it. And uh, we've consulted with major Bible scholars and so forth. So now it's a matter of of kind of application, not invention as much, Mm -hmm. because we have a very clear method. How literal should you be? What are the plays on words? How are you going to translate? We're going to get into one in verse 8. I'll explain that as an illustration. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, uh, and actually the entire Hebrew Bible, which means I need to live to be 120, so... That's wish right. Well, really you, you're in good shape. You're, you're in, in excellent good shape. shape. You can do it. You can do that. <laughs> All right. So he, he continues saying, I listen to Ross every Shabbat and really enjoy the digging into Scripture. There you go, Ross. That's, that's your gig every uh, Shabbat in United Israel. People can find that on uh, YouTube and the United Israel page. Uh, on, on Facebook, if you subscribe to the Facebook um, United Israel page, and there's a group there as well. He further commented saying, uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, it seems as if the man... Uh, was with the woman when she ate the fruit, uh, when it says, and she took from the fruit and she ate it, and she gave also to her man with her, and he ate. Mm -hmm. Uh, He asked, was she the only one deceived? It seems as if he watched her eat it without trying to stop her, or maybe walked up on her eating it and then willingly partook of the fruit. If so, why would he do that? Any thoughts, James? I think there's several, if, if we take the story literally as it's written, like also to her man with her, mm-hmm. um, there's several intriguing things. If you remember back last week, we talked about how she quotes Elohim as saying, you will not eat from it, you will not touch it lest you die, which Ross pointed out is an addition. But you've got to ask, where did she get that addition? Because she wasn't there when Adam was told that in this story. Mm-hmm. And so now you get the reverse. Now, she states something incorrect, but did she get it from Adam? Mm-hmm. Uh, did he put the fence <laughs> around the law, so mm. to speak? And, and yet with her, you know, we can never be sure because it, it might just mean with her in the sense of the two of them are the pair in the garden. Mm. And so forth. And in that sense, he's, she's with him. But it does say to her man with her, quite literally. So yeah. maybe he's like not telling her to do it, but it's a joint act. <laughs> he he wants to see what it. happens to her when she bites into it. Yeah. Yeah. And notice the next verse, you're going to read it, but the eyes, you read it last time, so I can read it. The eyes of the two of them were open. We're open. Yeah. So this is a unison kind of an experience, which we're going to talk about. And as you point out, James, there's a lot of uh, room for speculation as to how this may have played out if we take it literally. Um, Another explanation that I've heard is that Adam took and ate uh, after her because he realized the predicament that she was in and there there was not another. She was his woman and he wasn't going to leave her there by herself. Perhaps he took and ate so that they were in it together, perhaps. Um, That's real noble. That's well, real noble of him if he did that, you know. He you know, thought, can, I'm not going to let her go down by herself, you mean? <laughs> yeah, perhaps, you know. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. If she's going to be in trouble, let's both be in trouble, perhaps. Um, so anyway, we find ourselves in chapter 3, and I think we left off at verse 8, uh, where things begin to change. We have a, a slightly... Um, uh, things get serious right here because it says... And they heard the voice of Yehovah Elohim walking about, walking about in the garden, mm-hmm. in the wind of the day, and the soil creature made himself hidden and his woman from the face of Yehovah Elohim in the middle of the trees of the garden. Now, not only have they made for themselves uh, clothes of sort, they made for themselves loincloth with, uh, with leaves and so on, but they've gone and hidden among the trees. Uh, of the garden, and Yehovah Elohim called towards the soul creature, and he said to to him, where are you? And he said, your voice I heard in the garden, and I feared, for I was nude, and I was hidden. Uh, and he said, who told you that you were nude? From the trees that I charged you so as not to eat from it, have you eaten? And the soil creature said, 
the woman that you you gave her to be with me, she gave to me from the tree and I ate. And Yehovah Elohim said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the Nachash, he deceived me. And I ate. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause there. There's there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot right there's there. A lot. Um where shall we begin? If we go back to eight, James. Well let's go back to eight and just beyond just the meaning of eight, uh ju- this I want to point out some things about the translation that uh make this translation so different. First of all, why not say sound walking about? Because you don't now some people say he was singing, but in Hebrew any sound is a voice. So if I hear the leaves rustling in the trees, that's the oh, voice really? of the trees. You see, okay. it's very yeah. poetic. Voice of the so shofar is another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't oh, sure. see the point of all the way through this translation. We try to stay with that singular core meaning. You see, and remember we did rivers walking. You say, well, rivers don't walk; they flow. So you make up a new word. But it's the word walk. Why should we make up a new word? So we're trying to give you the feel of the Hebrew. Okay. But then notice walking about. Now that has to do with the grammar. So you got to flip back or if you have the Kindle, you can just click on it. And this is a form of the verb. That's the hit pile that literally means it's iterative. It means like back and forth, back and forth. So he's strolling, we would say. But again, just walking about again in the wind of the day most translations say in the cool of the day Mm. but it's the word ruach so again don't interpret is my rule yes it probably means you know the wind blows at the end of the day and it cools off the heat but it doesn't say the cool of the day i always Mm. remind my students there are words like cool for cool in hebrew and if you don't Mm -hmm. use that word why should i use it you see? Fair enough. I know yeah. that's a little over literal, but what people try to do is fix this into the English we like and are used to. They, oh, that's a good English translation. That's what you do. Well, then you're, lo- I love this. Just, it's not some profound thing, but to hear the voice and he's walking about and it's the wind of the day and then he makes himself hidden. Why didn't I just say, and he hid? Every other translation, he hid, Mm -hmm. but he said he made, and it doesn't say they hid. Like I'm looking here, I have an American Standard Version, very literal. It says the man and his wife hid themselves, but actually it's a little different. Notice, literally, it says, and the soul creature made himself hidden and his woman, see? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a different feel in the Hebrew. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure. But maybe he's like, you know, like we were saying before, trying to imagine it. Eve, Eve, come, get under here. Get under these trees like I'm doing. He made himself hidden and his woman. And then from the face. Now, we know face means present. Why not put face? Why not put presence? I'm looking again. American Standard. I love the American Standard. They hid themselves from the presence of Jehovah God. But that's not what it actually says, you see. Mm. Now, sometimes I, I, I have to make a decision. Trees of the garden, it's actually the tree. I was about so to bring I, that up. But also the face yeah. is, is in the plural. Because, so we have face in the plural and trees in the singular. Yeah, um, yeah let's talk about that. There's a reason for that. Uh, we, I don't have a problem with going with faces. In fact, we could change it with one keystroke, you know, find and replace that's not a problem. But f- faces in Hebrew is a single face. It's the two sides of the face. And so it might m- be misleading to say faces, meaning like he has many presents. You know, I'm implying a duality. He's got his angry presence and his loving presence. And people could get off on all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But it's always plural. The water is plural, too. Right. Faces of water. But with trees, to say the tree is going to make people think that it's a single tree. But in Hebrew, you often use a singular generically for a plural. You do it with numbers all the time. If you say how many hundreds, you don't say hundreds. You say how many hundred. And we do that sometimes even in English. Uh So there I wanted to go with the English because it's not just one tree. Mm -hmm. You know, like 
Oh, they, they, because it says in the middle of the, well, tree. let me, let now me add something. Let Russell. me, let me add something on that, James, because one thing that you can think about now, this is some might say it's speculating. However, um, when they eat of the fruit, you know, typically people picture a, a beautiful red apple hanging from the tree. Uh, but I've always taken in context, you think, well, you know, there are some clues that this is a fig tree. Number one, they use uh, a fig leaf, singular, uh, to make a garment, basically, to cover themselves, a loincloth, right? And then when you read that it says, uh, Hagan, a tree of the garden, or the, the garden tree, it could be you've ever seen a big, nice fig tree and how they're just huge, a beautiful fig tree. You could be in the middle of a fig tree. And so I've always thought it might be that the forbidden fruit was a fig tree. Now, I like to eat figs, so hopefully they're not still forbidden. Uh, but it is contextually, the suggestion is, is that it is a fig tree, and quite possibly they could be hiding in a singular tree. What do you think about that? I think it's You know possible. how the branches go to the ground? and so This is the first example of camouflage is what you're suggesting. Could be. And <laughs> could a fig, be. <laughs> now those, the clothes, the loincloth would be itchy. You know, a fig tree, a fig leaf is itchy. Uh, but it could. I've, I've never tried it, Ross, but I'll take your word for it. I don't wear them as <laughs> underwear. I'm just saying it, that you get it on your skin, no matter what skin. So Sure. Yeah. <laughs> if you look up. The singular of ets, though, you'll find that many, many times, contextually, it's definitely trees of the forest right. and so forth. And so that's why I, I I never want to lead the reader into something like it's a single tree when I know yeah. that in Hebrew, so often use the singular for the plural. Mm -hmm. so, Good point. Okay. So now, that was all technical about translation, but now... Where are you? Your voice, again, it's your voice, not your sound, but your voice. So see, I don't want to say sound in verse 8. He heard the sound because he said, your, your, your voice I heard. Uh, uh, I heard in the garden, I feared for I was nude. Now, this whole nudity thing, how do you know you were nude? Did somebody tell you? goes back to verse 7. And I'm going to wait a minute because we touched on this several weeks ago when we did episode 5. But the greatest idea that I want to cover in chapter 3 has to do with how did they know that they were nude? And notice, it isn't because somebody told them, but it's because their eyes were opened. Mm -hmm. And they knew good and evil or good and bad because that's what they were told. In the day you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be as gods. So we're going to I'm going to save that because to the point where they get kicked out. And that's okay. when it's will make sense to discuss. But just keep in mind, he asked, well, who told you you were nude? And clearly we've already been told. Remember, the reader is ahead of the dialogue. You've already been told. Who told them? Nobody told them. But as soon as they ate this fruit, a transformation took place in their being so that they perceived themselves as naked in sexual beings. They essentially became mature and knew good and evil. Remember the verse in Isaiah that Ross quoted? Uh, Isaiah 7, let's see, I've got it here, 16. Before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a period of time it's coming of age and then of course we've mentioned several times Deuteronomy 139 mm -hmm. so this doesn't which is little children who don't yet have the knowledge of good and evil they're still in the garden now when we get to the expulsion I'm going to suggest to you and I'll just mention it here that we all were in the garden of Eden and we all ate the fruit mm -hmm. but let's wait on that Let's wait and explain it more. One, is, one, other quick, one other quick point, and it might be a question that you, you intend to get to later. But as I read these stories over the years, I've often thought about this. The Nakash really doesn't lie, does he? Um, Absolutely. You know, no. he, it, he, it says, uh, 
you know, uh, in verse five, Elohim knows that in the day you eat from it, that your eyes will be opened and you, plural, will be as Elohim, knowing good and bad. And that's exactly what happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. In, in regards to the uh, the translation here, uh, just remind us, James, you have she uh, gave to me from the tree, and she is in italics, but in, uh, it's in bold. Uh, a little further down, you have the same he will strike you. Um, you yeah. will strike him. These, these words are in italics, but they're in bold. Just remind us what that means in the translation. It has to do with uh, how you emphasize a word in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. When you emphasize a pronoun, uh, it's indicated in the position within the Hebrew. And so in Hebrew, you would understand that, but in English, you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so you read it correctly. Uh, you can hear it in your voice. The woman that you that you gave her to be with me, she gave it mm. to me, you see. So, so it's a like form of emphasis, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and we do that all the way through whenever it whenever a pronoun is emphasized. See, often in Hebrew, you don't need the pronoun. That's so if correct, you put right? the yeah. pronoun, then it's emphasizing the pronoun. Hmm. Like it's in the verb. It's built into the verb. Yeah, the Hebrew, so, there is a phrase, like James says, that without the pronoun, it's to me, but then it has a pronoun before that. So it literally is she, she gave to me. And so that bold really makes it stand out. I, that's one of the key features to let people know what's going on in the Hebrew. Verse 14, And Yehovah Elohim said towards the Nakash, Because you have done this, cursed are you above every animal and above every living thing of the field. Upon your belly you will walk, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Uh, and hostility I will set between you and between the woman, and between your seed and between her seed, he will strike you on the head and you will strike him on the heel. Now, that's true. Now, when we lived on the farm, um, you know, here in Australia, we have some of the most <laughs> poisonous <laughs> animals. <laughs> Everything wants to kill you in Australia is the joke. But the brown snake um, mm-hmm. is one of, if not the most uh, poisonous uh, snake in the world, I think, and so we'd also always say to the and they had they had uh, boots. Um, you know, if they were going out on the farm, if you're going out into the field, you always wear your boots because you have to cover your heels uh, just in case because there were snakes everywhere. Look, we all know uh, theologians, particularly, have just dove into this and come up with the you know cosmic Satan idea, and Christians, of course, Christ, you know bruises the the head of the serpent and you get allusions to this in the new testament and so forth and some of that could be implied uh in others it it might be there might be something more i don't necessarily mean christological or messianic but the idea of her seed remember last time we talked about a woman can seed seed Leviticus 12 and uh, Genesis 16:10 is in the notes as well. So even though we think of Zerah as male seed like semen or sperm, but it can also refer to ovum or a woman's seed. And since she's the mother of all living, I would simply say that it is alluding to this kind of a battle, this eternal battle between human beings, the children of the woman, and between these forces that are essentially questioning God or opposing God. I wouldn't go so far as to put a big S-A-T-A in here, although I know people do that, but uh, just this opposing force that you have. Ross, what would you say on that? Yeah, yeah, I was going to just add one thing that I find pretty interesting is that you know, we, we have this idea uh, from the quote-unquote curse on the Nakash, uh, as some people like to describe this, that it's at this point that the Nakash goes on its belly. If you, if you remember in Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65 looks forward to what some refer to as a messianic age, the Olam Haba. It seems to be some recreation that's going on where everything is restored the way it should be. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. I'm in Isaiah 65, 25. 
the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Both of these are beautiful pictures of a peaceful coexistence. But notice, dust shall be the serpent's food. In other words, no matter what else uh, takes place in a transformed world, a new heavens and a new earth, as Isaiah puts it, the serpent is still, or the nakash is still on the belly. And uh, by the way, that there's also another passage in Micah 7, 17. Uh, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth and so forth. So this idea, for whatever reason, uh, this holds true even in the next age, almost in the prophetic literature. I find that interesting. We have to say the Nakash in, in this whole section of chapter 3 is very mysterious. He's the slick one, the shining one. He's shrewd, and he's able to deceive, and yet he tells the truth, which is really slick. You know, you mm-hmm. end up telling the truth, but you end up, and uh, and then there's this hostility. So, I'm like I said, I don't think we should jump to Satan because it's going to take on all these other connotations that people have built into the devil, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. much, much later in Jewish history. But if you remember Satan, even if you did, Satan's not here, but this Nakash is acting as a Satan because he says things like, did God say? Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. And Satan, Satan, the verb means to oppose. So there is the, you know, the good. Remember, they have the knowledge now of good and bad. The Mm. forces of good and the forces of bad have a warfare that is released by human choice and freedom. And so their forces, Yetzer Hara and Yetzer Hatov in Hebrew, the inclination to do good and the inclination to do evil. And so the Nakash, the shining one, is pushing you towards the evil, and God himself will be pushing you, choose good that you may live. But in this case, um, the Nakash is enticing rather than opposing. Would that be fair? I mean, it's, uh, the, the, the Nakash is not acting as an adversary to, to the woman. He's enticing her to make her own decision here, uh, and and she submits to that enticement and and uh, disobeys God. Um, it's interesting the the theological slant that you cite is is so often imposed over the text here, and it and it brings me back to a question that I asked you last week in regards to the capitalization of Nech- of the, the 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 serpent Nachash, because when we go a little bit further, uh, and this is note seventy seven. Um, you make the note uh, regarding Adam, soil creature, without the article, probably uh, the proper name Adam. You make that that point uh, a couple of times there. And therefore, uh, it's capitalized, soil creature is capitalized. What is the rule here by which you, uh, that you use in the translation by which you capitalize Nakash? Because it does have the article. It is Hanakash. Well, first of all, I didn't want to put snake or serpent. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I think uh, there's more of an, a character to this being. This being has a character. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it's capital or not, uh, I would say you could go either way with that. You could either e- easily just say the Nakash. But you, then if you did that, you would almost need to put serpent. So I'm making this, I'm making this a person or character in the story. Not just like a tree or a river or a garden, mm-hmm. but actually a talking, walking character that acts, you see. And that's why I wanted to give it uh, sort of the name. It's not just the article, it's also the context. Uh-huh. You have to figure out in each context is it Adam? If she gave to the man, you could say to her man, you could say to her Adam, right? Mm-hmm. To Adam. So, but uh, you do it by context. That's how I did it, at least. Ross, you were going to say? Yeah, I was going to say uh, this. These three root letters, um, Nun, Chet, and Sheen, Nakash uh, is this what some people translate serpent. But if you look at this root word and you play it out, you know, you, you look up every reference, uh, the verb can mean to practice divination, to divine, to observe signs. 
and then, you know, we also have this story in the book of uh, Numbers, in Numbers 21, where the people rebel against Moses and against God, and they're bitten by these uh, nakashim. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, in that particular chapter, just quickly, Moses is told to make a seraph. Uh, it's a different word. And yet he makes a nakash and puts the nakash on the pole. And this thing then, then becomes a nakash nakoshit, because nakoshit means brass or, or bronze, probably something shiny, reflective. So there is this idea that you can get more than just a serpent. You know, it's something else going on here. Uh, all of these words tie in and, and kind of make you think, I wonder if this is really like, uh, like people depicted in art. There's a uh, a white space here. Is this reflected? This is uh, at verse 16. This is reflected in the text. Uh, it goes on to say, Toward the woman, he said, Making abundant, I will surely make abundant. We have exclamation marks there. I will surely make abundant your distress and your pregnancy. In distress, you will bring forth sons, and toward your man, you will, uh, will be your craving, and he will rule in you. And then there's a space again, James. Yeah, it's it's one of those wonderful times when you have a single verse set a, set aside, uh-huh. you know, and set off. And we would never do that in English. And it's like uh, double red underlines in the text. You know, we're reading mm-hmm. along, and all of a sudden we're really going to bracket something off. And I think it has to do with just, well, first of all, she's going to have children. She's going to be abundant. But your distress, it can also be translated sorrow, as I put in the note. Um, I really t- really struggle with whether to put sorrow or pregnancy, but I really think it has to do with just kind of the hardship of life, the challenge mm-hmm. of life, because the same word is used for the man. So it's not childbirth pain like people take it. I didn't want to get that idea. Because later the man plows the ground and he doesn't have childbirth pain. Mm-hmm. You know, like the woman, she gets the pains. There's a passage in Timothy or somewhere in the New Testament that seems to imply, you know, she'll be saved by suffering or by childbearing or something. Mm-hmm. That's not really the idea. But, but life is going to be tough. First of all, they're going to be out of the garden. So you're going to have distress in your realm, which is bringing forth sons. And then toward your man will be your craving, and he will rule. Now, here was really tough. Uh, I really mm-hmm. struggle with this. And, uh, with regard to you, if you look at 4-7, uh, let's see, you have to go ahead yeah. a little. I don't have it right mm-hmm. with me. You have 4-7. What does 4-7 yep. say? Is there not, if you do good, a lifting? And if you do not do good, at the opening is error, a crouching one, and toward you is his desire, and you will rule in him. It's the same. I was going to bring that up. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. So uh, there's different ways. You know, generally it's taken as subservience of the woman. You're going to have a craving for the man, and he will be your boss. Um, but if you take it more, uh, sort of, uh, let's see in my note, I think I put something, let me just remind myself, um, with regard to you, uh, and he will rule with regard to you. Um, it's just, uh, it's a little different. Uh, so I, I didn't want to add the word regard. So I just said in your realm, in your realm, he will rule and you'll have to look to him mainly because he's feeding you as it goes on to say, as you're going to have these children and you're going to try to take care of them. But as you have this craving to take care of them, you're going to have to look to the man who's outside of working the soil, the thorns and the thistles, and sweating, and he is having his distress also. Same word. He's going to have the distress as well, verse verse, uh, 17. Mm-hmm. And so the idea would be you, you're, you're raising these children, and he's outside hitting the barren ground, the thorns and the thistles. It's going to be tough outside of Eden. You won't just be picking this fruit. But you're going to have to depend on him. Now, you say, well, couldn't she go out and work? And leave the children. You see the idea? 
So it's not so much like everybody's got to be a housewife, but it's saying that this responsibility of children is going to be your primary domain. You know, you bear the children, you bring them forth. And I think we all agree, you know, you could say, well, the man also can care for the children. Of course they can. And I hope all of us have and do. But yeah. uh, there's still a difference. We all know that from our children. Well, evidently, our there's a biological difference that makes her appropriate uh, to, to care in certain ways that we are oh, not able to. But A shit but, lion. You know, you go like, well, a man would protect his kid. Well, try attacking a mother. Try yeah. attacking a mother. <laughs> You'll find out about protect right there. And that's one of the words later we're going to see El Shaddai is, uh, I'll just go ahead and say this because it applies here, El Shaddai shot his breast and Shaddai is to destroy. And so there's kind of a double meaning. And scholars say, does it mean the God who who destroys and you know protects as a strong arm out protecting the child, holding the child? Or is it the God who nurses and suckles? Well, a woman, believe me, will nurse the child, and if anybody tries to touch that child, she will tear that, that enemy apart. And we see that in the animal world, and believe me, you see it in the human world, too. We could all tell stories, I'm sure, about some of our children, you know, and how the mothers, oh, my mm. goodness, they really. And yet, in that caring for these children she's bringing forth, she's got, she doesn't just do that on air independently, like, okay, I'm doing this. And so uh, she's looking to him. Um, then, now, now we have to, um, tr I mean, how does this translate to 4.7 that, that Ross brought up in regards to uh, Cain? And I know that we're jumping forward a little here, but it says, at the opening is error, a crouching one, and towards you is his desire, and you will rule in him. You will rule in him. So, is is there a parallel here that we can draw with these two texts? I don't think so. In that verse, we really got. You don't think that's on. intentional, though? Uh, no, I just think rule in the realm of meaning I, the grammar. It's just mm -hmm. when you say rule in it or in him, in it him, means yeah. rule within that sphere. And so, uh, but there is a a very strong meaning in verse seven that has to do even with a grammatical problem that we'll talk about. But let's don't go there yet beyond this. Okay. But the phrase rule in it or over it, in the realm of, concerning, something like that, mm -hmm. I think is the idea. Verse 17, And to the soul creature he said, Because you hearkened to the voice of your woman, and you ate from the tree that I charged you, saying, You will not eat from it. Cursed is the soil on account of you. In distress, and there it is, you will eat it all the days of your life. And thorn and thistle, it will sprout for you, and you will eat the plant of the field. In the sweat of your two nostrils, you will eat bread <laughs> until, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that's different. Until you return toward the soil, for from it you are taken, for, you, for dust you are, and towards dust you will return. And the soil creature called the name of his woman, ah, and here we have, and, and you've translated this as Eve, for she was the mother of all living. And Yehovah Elohim made for soil creature and his woman robes of skin, and he dressed them. James. Yes, so uh, the distress, uh, I'm going to kind of skip to that. Uh, of course, mm. he does say, you, you hearken to the voice of the woman. Notice I, I have the word ear, hearken has the word ear in it. And so I tried to preserve that and sort of, instead of going with, you listen, it's literally, mm -hmm. you heard to, so you hearken to, because you can't mm -hmm. say you heard to. You put your ear to, is the idea. Mm -hmm. um, but the distress is important because this idea that the woman gets this special pain and childbearing, and then the man rules over her. These are these later interpretations that you find in some of the New Testament texts, particularly in the pastorals, the pseudo-Pauline material. I don't even think Paul wrote those, but uh, most scholars think they were written by disciples of Paul. Mm -hmm. But it is this idea, look, uh, Eve sinned, not Adam. She was deceived, So, and, and uh, he's the head of the house, and he rules, and so forth. 
And then there's this idea, and but she'll be saved because she's going to really suffer pain when she has kids. And mm. so I felt it was so important mm. for women to understand that the man outside plowing that ground and the thorns and the thistles trying to raise those plants and produce that bread, he's having his own kind of pain. It's exactly the same word. And I felt that was pretty, mm. you know, pretty important for people to realize because I've heard it explained so many times the other way. Mm. Uh, but you are dust. Oh, two nostrils. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, That's called the, the duel. Two nostrils. Yeah, it's called the duel. And uh, even to get angry is to, to flare up the two nostrils. We're going to see that later with mm -hmm. Cain and Abel. So again, just uh, it's just putting the literal Hebrew. It has a power to it. You know, if I said to you, Jono, you can see with your two eyes what I'm doing right here. Mm. You know, that's different than say, Jono, you can see what I'm doing right here. You see? Mm. So uh, it's just, uh, and notice the sweat comes down your nose and drips off. Don't you love that? It's yeah. not just on the forehead. Like when you really sweat, you're really sweating. You're really yeah. hitting that soil with that hoe, that dull hoe that's, that's just not penetrating. But what I really like then is dust you are, and to dust you will return. Mm. Dust you are? Wait, I thought we were immortal souls. But remember, the soil man has the breath of life, but so do the living creatures. He's a nephesh. They are nephesheen too. Mm -hmm. And nephesh go back to the dust. It doesn't preclude resurrection. It doesn't preclude future eternal life. In fact, we're going to see that mentioned in this very chapter, when they're put out of the garden. But death is not life in the Hebrew Bible. Death is not life. Whereas in later Hellenistic thought, in later Christian thought, death is life, and birth is a kind of a death. You fall into the world of sin, right? And then when you die, you're born, you get life. It's completely opposite from the Hebrew. So right. that's important. Uh, Eve, yeah, Eve. I went ahead with her name. She gets her name now. Uh, you know, husband and wife are words that generally aren't used in Hebrew. It's just woman and man, woman and man, woman and man. German does that, too. If I'm speaking in German, a woman might say, uh, mein Mann, my man, means mm -hmm. my husband. Right? It's just many languages do that. English just tends to put in nouns. But uh, Kava. I named one of my children, Kava, Eve, and it's really a, a wonderful word. It just means, uh, literally, it means living. He named her living, for she was the mother of all living. Let, let me ask so, you a question, James. Uh, where, etymologically, where do we get Eve from? Where does, where, where does Eve originate? You mean the name? Mm. The name Eve or the woman Eve? Well, because in the Hebrew, we have Kava. Uh, how, how in the English translations do we end up with Eve? Where does that... Uh, uh, originate from? Well, it's from the verb to live. It's a form of the verb to live. You know how we say lachayim and so forth? Oh, so, I, I know, in, of yeah. course, in, in Hebrew, but the actual, the name Eve, E-V-E, -E, oh, from what Eve. language is that I derived? I'm thinking it's probably Latin. I'm sorry, I didn't get your question. You know, I think it's probably Latin. We need okay. to look that up. Um, I'm trying to think of what the Greek is. I can't remember offhand. I'll well, you, you can recognize at least talking. the last part, the V-E, uh, mm -hmm. is very close in the Hebrew, I guess, to Chava. So I'm not sure if the E in whatever language this comes to us in is part of the, it's not Greek. the Het. Yeah. yeah I, I just looked. It's definitely not Greek because Greek is Zoe. You know mm -hmm. how some girls yeah. are named Zoe? Oh, yeah. uh, they're actually being named Eve, which means life, mm -hmm. like zoology. I think it's probably Latin. I'm almost right. sure it's Latin. Probably from the Vulgate. Let me let me ask a question here, or or uh, at least throw something in the mix. In that verse twenty one, a, a lot of people they take this down a path that the Hebrew and and even the English, especially here, doesn't say. Um, it says that in Yehovah Elohim made for soil creature and his woman robes of skin and he dressed mm. them now i've heard growing up in church that this is the first sacrifice and an animal was killed and he made garments for him you know you picture it in my little sunday school books as a child 
but but it doesn't say that. Um, there's no indication that there is uh, any death here at all. Would you agree, James? Any death? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you can even, say. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it says he makes robes a coat note or robes of skin, but I don't think that we can imply that that is suggesting uh, that. To do so, he slaughtered a cow or something and took the hide and made, you know, it just doesn't indicate that. And I don't know what kind of garments he made, but I think people are taking that too far. The reading into the text is my, what I'm saying. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ross, because um, uh, as a kid, I remember thinking somewhere lying in the Garden of Eden is a couple of skinless lambs <laughs> that yeah. came to an unfortunate fate for the sake of... Uh, uh, Adam and Eve, but um, but what you're saying is that that's not explicit, and I guess you're right. Uh, robes of skin, who knows? That's um, that's curious. James, anything to add there? The rabbis like to see it as uh, light, uh, robes of light. They actually like yeah. to uh, take it that way. So, well, you you um, you read the word or is that not light? Uh, is is that what you read there, uh, Ross? It's. It's close. It's close. It's not actually the the same Hebrew word, but there, you know, a lot of times the rabbis will get pretty creative when they they look mm-hmm. at one word and they go, oh, well, this is implying this on another level. Okay. Um, but the the word there is exactly like uh, Doctor Tabor has its skin. But I think that's one of the things that uh, I just wanted to bring up because I've heard people, many people say, yeah, this is uh, something the trouble to is die it, in order for them to cover. Yeah, and it could be, remember, they're just, uh, I don't think it's talking about any sacrifice. Skin, the skin of your teeth is used in the Bible, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Skin for skin. It's a metaphor. It means uh, a thin covering. So, uh they're wearing fig leaves around their genitals, basically, kind of, I mean, that's the image you get. You know, they're kind of holding some things over their nakedness, which generally would probably be the genitals. And so you can, you know, this idea that the skin of your teeth, uh, something very thin. So it could even mean uh, um, thin clothes. He made them uh, clothing of uh, you know, of quality, of thinness, very mm. thin, like figuratively, something like that. Um, or it could mean animal skins, but uh, I think at this point, the idea of shedding blood is not in the picture. Right. Uh, that comes later. So, Right. Uh, well, outside the gates of Eden. Because, you know, he's already said, you eat the creatures, and later in Genesis, as I gave, Genesis 9, as I gave you the green tree and the fruit of the tree, I now give you, you know, the blood. So it just uh, doesn't fit right here. Verse 22, and uh, Yehovah Elohim said, look, the soil creature has become like one from us. I've never heard it put like that before. Has become like one from us to know good and bad. And now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live for an age. And Yehovah Elohim sent him from the Garden of Eden uh, to service the soil from which he was taken. And he drove out the soil creature he made dwell at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and the flame of the sword that was revolving to guard the way of the tree of life. Wow. Uh, James, uh, he has become like one from us. Yeah, like one of the Elohim. Uh, mm. Who? What are the Elohim? They're the ones knowing good and evil. Uh, remember, humans are made in the image of God. And here, when they come to age... Uh, remember, little children who have not yet the knowledge of good and evil, then they grow up into their full human capacity, and we are godlike. It's a very scary thing. If you think about it, you have within your choice and your control to do absolutely anything that's in your power. Absolutely anything. And I don't want to gross anybody out, but I'm talking about you could torture a creature or a person. You could lie every word of your mouth. The rest, you know, mm-hmm. you could do anything. Or, and so it is this godlike capacity, whereas animals tend to act by instinct 
humans are creating a kind of moral uh, character outside the gates of Eden. And as long once and, and it's the only way to be, we don't want to be robotic. We don't want our children to stay in the nursery, right? We don't even want them to stay in the home when they're 30, 40, 50 years old, right? Uh, because they're supposed to be out of Eden, so to speak, and making their own choices in the world. But if you do that, you can't have access to the tree of life. We have a lot of ancient New Eastern stories that parallel this. Gilgamesh is the main one we know, where it's basically saying, look, gods have the capacity for eternal life. or Well, gods have the capacity to make choices. They have free will. Knowing good and evil, you'll be like the gods. They also get eternal life. The dust creature doesn't get eternal life, uh, or at least right here. Now, it's implied that maybe that could be changed or something. In other words, it's not like you burn down the garden and get rid of the tree. And so I think it's the idea that uh, humans have to develop and become what they're going to become before they're given the gift of eternal life, which the Elohim have. Hmm. Uh, the angels and so forth and other Elohim, uh, because they they have to make a record of character as to what they're going to be like. If you think about immortalizing someone who's utterly bent on evil and destruction, you know, when we leave the world, we often say to our children, we want you, we want you to look back and think, the world is just incredibly enriched by my being here. Or what about... Mm-hmm. The world is horribly diminished by the fact that I was on this planet. Horribly diminished. Oh, well, let's give that person, let's immortalize that kind of choosing. So, I mean, I'm interpreting it here. Mm. But I think uh, in order to fulfill the plan for, for the soil creatures, plural here, the man and his wife, they, they have to grow up and leave Eden. And the way they do that is by asserting their own uh, power and choice and actually by disobeying God. He told them not to eat it, and they ate it. And that's the day they grew up. Hmm. Now, was it a good thing? I would say it was an inevitable thing. It's going to happen. You know, the potential of humanity, of Adam, is really uh, something that I think people miss in the Hebrew Bible. And I always think when I read this passage about Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than, and some translations say the angels, whatever. But in the Hebrew, it says you made him a little lower than the Elohim. Now get this, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion. Now this is our word, mashal from Genesis that we we talked about a little bit where uh, he will rule in you. This is the same. So it's it's like Adam is created a little lower than the Elohim and then given dominion over the work of your hands. You put all things under his feet. So this is kind of an interesting idea. It's a responsibility maybe. And uh, I think people need to understand it more in that light. So that's a good verse to bring in. Uh, you might uh, say that this soul creature is a mock-up disposable model of what could develop into a righteous, godlike creature that you would want to immortalize. But if it doesn't turn out that way, you certainly will let it go back to the dust, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of idea you get much, much later with resurrection, uh, like in Isaiah. Your dead will live. Your mm. dead bodies will arise, meaning everybody goes back to the dust. But who has left a record that would then be given eternal life when death is swallowed up? We just have little hints of this, but I'm going all the way to Isaiah. Death is swallowed up, right? And yeah. uh, every tear is dried. And, and yet, why why does that come at some sort of eschatological end and some sort of judgment at the end? Uh, well, because right now, 
who's gonna who are you gonna pass out eternal life to and how do you know what they're gonna do with that sort of power that seems to be the idea so is it the fall of man we always hear that you know the fall of man uh i really don't see it as a fall i see it as a growing up a coming of age and the inevitable choice of becoming an elohim knowing good and evil Remember, knowing means experiencing, having the experience. Mm-hmm. By we, the uh, way, what, could I add, could I add uh, one more thing just for, because I know a lot of your listeners come out of Christian backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something. Everybody says that Paul is for original sin and the fall of man, and Augustine interprets Paul that way. But you know what? Paul agrees with me because he's Jewish. He says in Romans 7, I was alive apart from the law, and then sin came and I died. And then he says, he talks about good and evil. I know the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, I do. He's talking about the struggle there. So he's recognizing that when he was growing up as a child, uh, he wasn't responsible. And then he said, sin came and I died. And so even though he talks about death passes to all, he says, everybody forgets what he says in Romans 5, death passed to all because all have sinned. See, you've had your Eden, Jono. I've had my Eden. Ross, you've had your Eden. We had an innocent period. We We came to an age of accountability, and then we began to forge our own way. And we've made good choices and bad choices along the way. We struggled, right, with good and evil. Mm-hmm. And that's how you become an Elohim who some you already are an Elohim. You're like an Elohim because you can think and know and decide and choose and you're autonomous, but you don't have eternal life. You're very temporary. Now, the only reason I quote Paul there is I want, you know, some people are like, why, why is he getting into Christianity? Because even Paul, I say even Paul, who did in many, many ways, in my opinion, go away from the Torah, on this point, I think he's reflecting the very idea that he probably inherited from his Judaism. You know, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would, that's the struggle. And you come to a point, he said, the law came and I died. We call it bar mitzvah. The law came, meaning I came to really understand what's, what's required of me. And then I died because I just saw all my failings and sins. Before we close off, James, I just want to uh, come back to verse 22 and note that you put there, note 79. Uh, the text says, And now lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live for an age. And here's something I don't think that's appeared uh, prior to this point. You've got dot, dot, dot and an exclamation mark as if, as if there was something further to be said. And there's an interesting note there at 79. Do you want to read that for us? This sentence is incomplete and breaks off. It, it's, yeah, it's not a complete sentence if you read it, you know. Explain uh, it for me. Well, let me read it out loud the way I would read it. Sure. Uh, so this is Elohim talking, uh, Jehovah. Look, you know, like, oh, my God. <laughs> we just say, oh, my God. But it's God speaking, so we didn't say, oh, my God. Look, the soul creatures become like one from us to know good and bad. And now, lest he send forth his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live for an age. And it just breaks off. Right. So it's the it's this excited sense of like, this has happened. It's finally happened. It's finally happened. He's grown up. He knows good and evil. Stop, stop. We have to stop. We can't. We can't leave him here because he could eat and live forever. And then we would be immortalizing the good and the bad choices huh. you see it's this okay. it's it's got this excitement to it it's like somebody talks so fast that they just break off and almost stutter you know does that make sense yeah i, I see what you've done there so th- these it's just another example of the kind of things that you get in the um uh, in the teb that you wouldn't find in an ordinary english translation this is as is the point more literal and uh, and finally um the cherubim and the flame of the sword that was revolving to guard the way of the tree of life. Is there anything that you want to uh, add there before we sign off? Well, let's, we've gone pretty long. Let's pick up on the Caribbean next time because they're, okay. uh, we know quite a bit about them. 
And of course, they are these uh, heavenly like creatures that are like flaming fire and so forth. And it might even have to do with Eden. And notice again, it's at the east of the Garden of Eden where the doorway is going into Eden. And it might have to do with the Ark of the Covenant and the tent of meeting and some of that symbolism as Ross alluded to last time. Uh, remember, only the high priest can go in once a year and so forth into that holy of holies. Hmm. And so uh, there's some sort of East of Eden imagery here. Interesting. Um, any final thoughts, Ross, before we go? One final thought, just to uh, bring in something that uh, Dr. Tabor notes in his notes to verse 22. And Jehovah Elohim said, look, the soil creature has become like one from us to know good and bad. The footnote there shows that the Hebrew can reflect another reading. It can mean just as easily, look, the soil creature has become like one from him to know good and bad. So you have to ask yourself if the Hebrew can reflect either, uh, it's just something else to think about. And that's what's good about the notes is they mm. bring in, you know, you go with what you think probably is the most correct. And I think that that's probably the most correct, what he has there. But uh, he also puts in the note that it could mean one from him. And who would the him be? Is it the Nakash? I don't know. But interesting. Very interesting. Well, that's it, uh, dear listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Dr. James Table. We will be back this time again next week where we'll be kicking off from Chapter 4. And until then, have an excellent week.